Well, good morning. Uh, we're closing out a series today. The series is called How Life Works. And um, I've been kind of sharing with you the five things I believe all of us need to know before life will work for us. We started with the plus sign and we said God adds. I think God gave us the process of addition so that we would understand the very nature of God. Anytime you have an encounter with God on his terms, you'll always walk away from the table with more than you came with. And then the second week, we said we saw the subtraction, the minus sign, and we said Satan takes away. Jesus said he's a thief, and he comes to steal. And then the third week, we saw the multiplication sign. And we said anytime you take something that you have in your hands and you give it to God and you trust it with God, trust God with it rather, then you can not only grow by addition, but you can actually grow by multiplication. Last week, we talked about division. We saw that God gave us the process of division to help us, you know, segment lump sums of our life to make them functional. But today, I want to talk to us about probably the most difficult uh, of all the topics to talk about. Maybe, maybe they'll be the most difficult for all of us to wrap our hands around and really understand. But it's, it's so important because this is what you need to know in order to have good relationships. If, if you look at why we, why we struggle so much with relationships in our uh, in our world today, whether we're talking about marriage or we're talking about parent-child relationships or we're talking about uh, you know, people having rage with other people in the community, or even all the way to, to things like we see happening in Darfur. What's behind it is an absence of an understanding of a fundamental truth that God has spun into our universe, and it's this, that God has given every human being equal value. That is a hard thing to really grasp, though. I mean, we can say it, but it's something else to really live it and feel it and, and have it part of our thinking in our lives. Let me give you an example. When I say that all men are created equal, it's probably going to take you to the United States Declaration of Independence because that is pretty much the first statement of our first official documentation. When, the, when, when our nation broke away from England, we, our founding fathers, wrote, they penned the Declaration of Independence. And they, they put these words there. These may be the only words you may remember from the Declaration of Independence. But, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Now, most of us know that terminology. Although, could I just tell you that there was a revision there because in the original documentation, the founding fathers wanted it said like this. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable that all men are created equal. But Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote the final draft, he substituted the word self-evident. But at the end of the day, it's still, it's still our, our documentation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if you ever read the whole De- Declaration of Independence, which is, you're going to have to probably be really have some time on your hands when you do that. But really what the Declaration of Independence is, is the founding fathers were making their accusations against King George and explaining why we were breaking off as a country. And while they're making their accusations against King George, somebody thought it would be a good idea to indicate that George had fostered slavery and that he had taken people away from their own lands and and brought them into the English colonies to be slaves. But because our founding fathers were still not all totally against slavery, they took that out. Isn't that interesting? Because in the first line of the Declaration of Independence, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, but we're still going to protect slavery. You see what I'm saying? It's one thing to put it into our, into our documentation that we think that all men are created equal. It's something else to live that way. So let's make it personal. Let's talk to you and me for a moment. 
And I want you to do something right now. You're, you're really going to have to unscrew the halos and put them in your purses, put them in your wallets, probably just put them under the pew right now because you're going to have to be a long way away from your halo for us to do this. But we need to. I want you to think about a time in your life when you felt superior. And don't tell me that you didn't feel that way because at some time in your life, you did feel superior. It might have just been for a minute. It, it may be something you feel every day. But there was some point in your life when you felt superior. Maybe you walked into a room and you were with a group of people and you said, you know what? I think, you may not have said this, but in your mind, I think I'm probably the smartest person in this group. I really feel that. I am probably smarter than anybody else in this room. Or it could be that you were with a group of women and you said, you know what? I just kind of checked this thing out. And I really think I am the most beautiful woman in this group. Or maybe I think I have the finest clothes in this group. Or guys may say, I think I have the best car among guys who are here on this fishing trip. Or it could be a lot more serious than that. It could be that you were driving through a part of town one time and you said, I think, you may never say this out loud, you may have said, I think I'm better than people who live in this town. I'm glad I don't live in this town, this part of town. Or it could be that you were with a group of people and they were racially different from you and you said to yourself, I don't think these people are as good as people in my race. Or I don't think these people are as good as I am because they're not, as educa- they're not educated as well as I'm educated. We don't say those things, but they're there. They click. They, they're just there before we realize it. And hopefully what every one of us did is the moment that came into our minds, we said, now nah, that's junk thinking. But if we didn't, what can happen is we can start thinking some really, really bad thoughts. You know what happens when you and I think that we're superior to someone else or some group of people? The, the next thing is we begin to feel like we have a greater sense of entitlement. Because we are superior, we are entitled to more than those people uh, are entitled to who, who are inferior. Or um, we, have, we have the right to have more influence. In our election cycle, there's a word that's been tossed around a little bit in, our, in, in, our, in, you know, in, in the terminology of the election, and it's the term elitist. And the reason why that's a painful term is people who are elitist feel like they have the right to have more influence on the populace because they are smarter and therefore the rest of the population needs their guidance in order to function as human beings. See, superiority, a sense of superiority, no matter what it's based on, a sense of superiority in which I feel like I have more value as a human being than somebody else, it is an ugly thing. It'll start with, I have a greater sense of entitlement. And then it'll go to something like this, disrespect. Anytime you see disrespect, what you are seeing, what you're watching, when anybody verbalizes disrespect, what you're watching is one person is saying to another person, I have more value than you. I was in my neighborhood. I was listening to, you know, kids were coming in late at night and mom called a little, little boy to come inside. And she said, it's time for you to come in. And man, he just shot off his mouth at her. I couldn't believe what he was saying to her. But I thought to myself, I don't know how old that boy is, maybe eight, nine years old. But somewhere along the line, he's figured out that he is superior to his mother. He is of more value than she is. He can treat her disrespectfully because he has a sense of superiority. We have a statement in our culture. We say inferiority breeds contempt. Let me explain that to you. What that means is 
When I say, uh, excuse me, I said that wrong, didn't I? I when I said, fami- I should have said familiarity breeds contempt. There is this sense that I have seen you enough and I have watched your failings enough that I have determined that you are inferior to me. Therefore, I have the right to put contempt upon you. Now, you know, it doesn't stop there, though. It doesn't just stop with disrespect. And by the way, I, I really believe this is one of the things that's just killing the average American home. I cannot believe the way people talk to each other. Can you? I don't listen to the way, I mean, it's like I, I hear people screaming at each other. I hear husbands and wives screaming invective and criticism and insults at each other. Let me tell you, that is only about one thing. That is about a prevailing sense of superiority. If I can scream at you and put you down, I am just saying to anybody who is listening and to God in heaven, I'm saying I'm superior to you. I can talk to you that way because I'm superior to you. And it just, you know, it just goes throughout. I mean, whenever there's a sense of superiority, there's an enhanced sense of entitlement. There is disrespect. There, there can be things like racism and sexism and abuse. And, and eventually it can even, we're watching it take place in Africa. It can actually become genocide. What, what was it? What was it that led Adolf Hitler to do what he did in the Holocaust? In his mind, he had a superior race. The German people, the Aryan people were superior. So therefore, he would just clean out all the inferior peoples. I, I, I almost never encourage you guys to go do something, you know, because that's it's, you know, pretty well what you do. You know, I, I don't ever want to have an unnecessary influence on that. But there's a movie right now I really, really wish you would go see. It's called Expelled. I, we, we went and saw it this week, and I got to tell you, it is one of the most powerful things I ever saw in my life. And it's all about how the, the idea of evolution has led to, um, and Darwinist evolution has, has led to some really cruddy things in our world. Here's the deal. You know, when our founding fathers wrote the Declaration of Independence, they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator. Because if you do not believe in God, there is no reason on the planet to believe that we are all created equal. And there's no reason to believe that we're all equal. Because the evidence will always suggest that we are different. I mean, the very concept of natural selection has with its fundamental premise that only the strong survive, that the weak are weeded out. And we could all understand that we're not all equally strong. We're not all equally beautiful. We're not all equally endowed physically or mentally or in any other fashion. There are so many things that make us different. Absent God, there is no reason to believe that we are all equal. I mean, think about some of the things that make us different for a moment. We have different fingerprints. It is said that no two human beings have the same fingerprints. Now we know about DNA. And we're all, you know, none of us has the same genetic coding. And we're different genders, and we're different races, and we're different sizes and different shapes. So what, what, what is it? Because somebody could look at all these things and say, well, Mark, you know, if God made us all equal, why are we all so different? I want to explain that today as best I can, so, so let me try. Um, when God made you, he made you the way he wanted you. 
Every human being has within himself or herself a never dying soul. The Bible says that when God made Adam, he sculpted him out of the dust of the ground, blew his breath into his nostrils, and Adam became a living soul. He made Eve, and they passed life down to us. That life that is inside of you, that is what God has vested in you, and you will have it forever. But you are more than just a living person. God has given to every one of us gifts. I mean, that's what makes us distinct today. We all have different gifts. It'd be kind of fun to, to kind of learn what the giftedness is of everyone who attends New Spring this weekend. For instance, some of you are good with your hands. I am not. Listen, you know what? You know what these hands say? They say, call an expert. I'm telling you. <laughs> because I am so painfully pathetic with my hands. And some, some of you, you are good with your hands. I mean, you can just, I mean, you can make magic happen, basically. If somebody gives you wood, if somebody gives you fabric, if somebody puts you into machinery, you are so good with your hands. Others of you, man, you can process vast amounts of information. And you can like just retrieve it just like this. And when, when, you know, people at work, they say, you're a human encyclopedia. You're, you're just a human manufacturer's manual. And people just, you know, no, people not even in your department, they will come to you and they'll say, what do I do about this? And pow, it'll just be on the tip of your tongue and you can lay it out for them because you are so good. You, I mean, when you took the SAT test, I mean, you just grinned from ear to ear when the results came out. Others of you, you might not be good with your hands. You might not be able to process vast amounts of information, but you're intuitive. You can, be in, you can sit in a room and people can talk about a problem, and just out of nowhere, you can say, well, that's not a problem. All we have to do is do this. Because you could just, you just hit. Others of you are great negotiators. You know, you're just a people person. I mean, you know what? You can negotiate successfully, get a real good deal, and the person you just negotiated with will walk away and say, that's the greatest gal in the world. That's the greatest guy in the world. You just have that gift of negotiation. Others of you are very good. You're very articulate. It's like you can explain things. 30 people can be in a meeting. They can all be wrestling around trying to figure out exactly what it is that's being done. And you can just stand up and say, well, I think it goes like this. And you can explain it because you have those verbal skills and you have a way of communicating things where people can understand it. Every one of us has gifts. Where do those gifts come from? Let me read to you. There's this great verse in the Bible that asks three questions. It asks who, what, And why? And it's all about this giftedness. Listen to this this verse. Who makes you different from anyone else? Isn't it interesting that it doesn't say what makes you different from anyone else? It says who makes you different from anyone else? Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? So if you have a gift today and you're really good at something, what, what the Bible is saying is, first of all, remember who made you different. And, and what do you have? What is in your gift package that, that you didn't receive as a gift? And the third question, why? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not or as though you did it yourself? No matter what your gift is, whether it's, you know, whether it's art or music or science or business or whatever your giftedness is, you got that gift from God. Now, why did God give us those gifts? This is so cool. I really believe God gave us these gifts for for really three reasons. Number one, the old timers used to talk about giving glory to God. 
And, and that's kind of a difficult expression for us. What it just simply means is reflecting well. You know, if you're an artisan, if you're a craftsman or craftswoman, and, and you make something, what you make should reflect on how good you are as a craftsperson. So what God did is he gave all of us, men and women all over the world, he gave us all gifts so that those gifts would reflect back well on God. By the way, what's interesting is all the gifts that I've mentioned, God has perfectly. What God has put within each of us is some of the giftedness that he has to perfection. Number two, I believe God has given us our gifts to make the world a better place to live. You do not have your giftedness so that you can just get fat and rich and push everybody else around. God gave you your gifts so that you could make this world a better place to live. And then thirdly, if you're a Christ follower, God has given you your gifts in order to build a kingdom. That's why you have your gifts. Now, here's where it gets a little crazy because we could say, well, wait a minute, Mark. I mean, yeah, everybody's got gifts, but it looks to me like some people have a real big stack and it looks like some people have a real small stack. Let me tell you what caused us to think that way. The giftedness that you and I have not only has a value to God, it tends also to have a market value. That's where everything gets kind of screwed up. Because if you exercise your gift, it may be that your gift is kind of like a, you know, in the the world pays minimum wage for that gift. On the other hand, you may have a gift that when you exercise it, the world pays you millions of dollars. Now, in the sight of God, everybody is equal because God doesn't look, the Bible always tries to tell us this, that God does not judge on the outside, God judges on the heart. But what happens is this world judges on the outside. So let's just say you have a gift package and your gift package, when you exercise it, it makes a million dollars a year. The world looks at you and says, whoo, you're really big. Somebody else, their gift package, they may be exercising it to the full working at McDonald's. And the world says, wow, you're not as worthy as the guy over here. God doesn't look at that kind of stuff. If you want an example of that, Look at when Jesus picked his team. You guys, you guys ever, remember when you were kids, you'd like pick teams, you know, for like, you know, baseball or, or football, or touch football, basketball, whatever. You pick your team. And you know, if you're, if you're picking, you want the best athletes on your team, right? That's why you don't get to pick them all at one time. You pick and the other guy picks and so on and so forth. But look what happened when Jesus picked his team. I mean, he went down and picked Simon Peter. I mean, I think if Satan was standing there by Jesus while he, Jesus was picking his team, Satan had to say, you've got to be kidding. He's a fisherman. He's a loudmouth. And, and beyond that, I mean, this guy's just nothing. Satan said, I picked my guy. I picked Pontius Pilate over here. He's educated in Rome. He's a military guy. He's a guy I want on my team. He's super sharp. Jesus said, I'll just take Peter. Why? And because Jesus knew what he had under the hood. I was stopped at McDonald's this morning to take Stephen to get some breakfast. And I looked, there was this guy who had a brand new Ford pickup. He had three other guys with him. Just you know what guys do here at McDonald's? Pop the hood, look under the hood. Come <laughs> yeah, man, Jesus said, I'll take Peter. Why? Because Peter had the gift package inside of him that Jesus knew he could use. I'm talking to some of you here today, and you just say, well, I just must be a loser because I'm never going to be rich. Let me tell you something. If you are God's child, you have the gift package inside of you that God made you with. Now, let me read something else to you because, you know, (laughs) 
there's something every Christian needs to understand. This is something I never can. I've tried to understand this all my life, and I wish somebody would explain it to me. Isn't it strange the abuse that sometimes people have put religion behind? I mean, if you look, let me tell you something. There was a time, even in my lifetime, and I'm ashamed to admit it as an American, there was a time, even in my lifetime, when American, some American Christians, thankfully not anywhere close to all, but some American Christians used the Bible as an excuse for racism. Now, I want you to hear real, real, real clearly what the Bible has to say about this. In, in, this is in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. The Bible says, in Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all, what's our term today? Equal. That is, we are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. The greatest liberator of mankind, the greatest liberator of women, the greatest liberator of the races who ever lived was Jesus. Before Jesus came into our world, there were, ca- there were caste systems built into societies. Even, even when Jesus was on the earth, here's how a Jewish man would start his morning praying. This is how his prayer would go. He would say, God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile or a woman. And that's right. Because they had sort of the idea, you know, here's the Pharisees up here, and there's all these different strata of culture, and then there's Gentiles, and then there are women, and then there are slaves. And that's how the world looked at things. But along comes Jesus, and he's building a church, and he's saying, let me tell you something. It isn't Jew and non-Jew. It's not men and women. It's not bond and free. It's not millionaires and people on welfare, he's saying it's all one family in Jesus Christ. If we would learn that, it would stop, it would stop the pain that's in human relationships. We're all one, created equal. I've got to read a story to you. Is that okay? Because Jesus told a story about this. Here's, it says, he, he told this story, this is in Luke 18, about people who look down, on their, look down their noses at common people. So I want to hear his story. He says in verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. Now, put yourself back in Jesus' audience, because, you know, here we are in 2008, we're Americans, you know, and we're here in Kansas, and we're sort of like reading this whole story, but you have to realize that at one point, Jesus was talking to a group of people, and in this group of people, there were people that looked down their noses on other people and thought that they had a God reason to do it. And Jesus said, let me, let me just tell you the story. He said, there was two guys who went down to the temple to pray. The one, a Pharisee, and everybody's saying, duh. I mean, that's what Pharisees do. They didn't just go to the temple on the Sabbath to pray. They went to the temple three times a day. I mean, these guys were really, they were the most ultra-religious people in the world. Think about the most religious person you've ever known. I want to tell you something. They could not begin to compare it with the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, see, they had this deal of saying, we are superior to everybody else. The very word Pharisee means separate 
They believed they had a God reason for being better than everybody else. And their reason for being better than anybody else was the way they exercised their religion. In order to become a Pharisee, what you had to do is you had to confess in the presence of at least three other Pharisees that, number one, you would tithe on everything that you had and you would not eat in a place. You would not touch anything where everything had not been tithed on. You know, they, they didn't look at money like we look at money. They would tithe on their, their produce. They would tithe on their animals. They would tithe even on their spices. This is why a Pharisee could not go to dinner with anybody who was not a Pharisee because they might not have tithed on all their salt or cumin or whatever. Well, that's, that's you know, God bless them for tithing. I mean, that's pretty impressive. That's the first thing they had to confess to. Number two, they had to confess to not letting any kind of impurity ever be in their lives. Now, if they had just been talking about, you know, sin, that would have been one thing, but it was crazy. I mean, they, they could not eat anything that had not been ceremonially purified. One time the Pharisees jumped all over Jesus' disciples because they ate without washing their hands. And they were not talking about, you know, they were not talking about hygiene. Before the Pharisees would eat anything, let me just kind of tell you what they would do. They would take like two eggshells of water and they would, everything they did, they did to be seen to people. What they would do is they would hold their hands up like this, and they would pour water on the top of their hands, let the water drain down to their elbows. There are rules about all this. Let the water drain down to their elbows, and then they had to drop their arms like this so the water could drain back to the tip of their hands. I don't think it, did any, it didn't get any germs off, but it really looked dramatic. And, and, I mean, they could not touch anything dead. They could not touch anything that had not been ceremonially cleansed. I mean, there are just all kinds of rules for this. They could not, um, for instance, they could not touch a woman who had given birth. They could not be, get close to a woman who, who was having her period. They could not even get close to a man who had actually been with his wife. I could never be a Pharisee because that's a lot more information than I want to know. <laughs> so here's this guy. He goes to the temple to pray. I mean, he is, he is Mr. Religious, Mr. Ultra-Religious. And so when Jesus said, two guys go to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the guys who look down on everybody else, everybody's saying, well, yeah, of course, they go to the temple to pray. But then Jesus blows their minds. He said, the other, a tax man. Now, I know we just had April 15th, and a lot of you may not be in a real good mood about taxes. But we don't have any kind of problems like they had back in the first century. Because the way the Jews looked at it, see, what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about, I'm telling a story for people who look down their nose at others. He goes to the very top of the culture and talks about a Pharisee. Now he's going to go to the very bottom of the culture. But when the Jews looked at people, they thought there were certain people who were like the up, you know, people. And then there were the really bad sinners. There were the thieves and the liars and the prostitutes. And then down below them were the tax collectors. You know, if you, had a, if you had a son in jail for drug dealing, you could say, thank God he's not a tax collector. That's how they looked at it. Because in those days, Rome ruled the world, and, and Rome had this idea that they would collect taxes, and they would use people from those nationalities to collect taxes. Rome thought it would make people feel better about paying taxes. It might have worked in Egypt, it might have worked in Greece, but it did not work in Israel, because the Israel, Israelites hated the fact that their own people were being used by a foreign power to collect taxes from them. So no good self-respecting Jew would be a tax collector. Only the scum of the earth would take the job. And beyond that, if that was bad enough, these people often were dis dishonest because Rome said to them, look, you get our stuff, what you get on top of that is your business. They were notoriously thieves and dishonest. So 
Jesus in his story. He said, two guys go to the temple to pray. One is this Pharisee who won't even touch anything that's remotely unclean, who, you know, who's this ultra-religious guy, and this lowest scum-of-the-earth kind of guy. Well, now he's got their attention. Verse 11. The Pharisee posed. Now, you've got to see this. I was, reading, I was reading about this this week. This is really cool. What Pharisees would do, often do when they went to the temple to pray is they would get right up. To the, the prayer took place in what was called the court of women. And, and, and the Pharisees would get right up next to the very temple wall. And because they were separate from everybody else, they would say, stand back, stand back. I'm about to pray. Okay? You ever know anybody like that? Stand back. I'm about to pray here. So he did that. He posed and he prayed like this. Oh, God. I thank you that I am not like other people. Remember how I told you they started the prayers? I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid, like this tax man. I mean, a guy looked over his shoulder right before he posed and he saw there's a tax man. What's he doing here? And now he's going to tell God. And also, it looks like from the language that he just kept repeating this. I fast twice a week. Well, he's got me beat on that. And I tithe on all my income. So that's what he did. He prayed. Stand back, everybody. I'm going to pray. And my prayer is going to show that I'm superior to everybody else. Read the rest of the story. Meanwhile, the tax man slumped in the shadows. Let me just try to give you again what the language of the Bible is saying. What, what he did is when he walked into the court of women, he stood as far back as he possibly could. He slumped in the shadows, Scripture says. His face in his hands, not daring to look up, said, God, give mercy. Forgive me, a sinner. Now, Jesus' comment here, this tax man, not the other, went home, made right with God. Isn't it interesting how these two guys saw themselves? And isn't it interesting how God saw them? This Pharisee, stand back, people, I'm going to pray. I'm going to tell you how good I am. This publican in the back saying, I'm not, I'm not good enough to be here. I can't even look up. Hit himself in his chest, which is a universal sign of grief. Hit himself in the chest and said, God, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve anything. But have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, here's, this is so cool. Jesus said, that guy in the back, he went home, made right with God. The Greek word there means God tore up the evidence against him. Why did Jesus tell us that story? Because we know already he told, it, he told the story, he said on this premise, to talk to people who thought they were better than other people. What Jesus is saying is God is no respecter of persons. God looks on the inside. Guys, I, this is not an easy message to preach. I've had a hard time getting my arms wrapped around it, but I just pray the Lord has helped us understand some things today. What Jesus' story really teaches us is five things. And if you and I could learn to say these things from our hearts, it'd change our world, change our relationships. Number one, God made me. For every insecure person here today, if you could really grasp this, this would help you so much. You know what? You may not be as attractive in the eyes of the world. People may not look at you as valuable as somebody who makes a lot more money, but you can look in the mirror and say, God made me. I am God's creation. 
God thought there should be somebody like me. I've even talked to somebody here today. You've even contemplated suicide because you think the world would be better off without you. No, it wouldn't because God made you. God made you. Number two, God loves me. Because the Bible says God loves every human being. God has vested you and me with eternal souls. God has made us the way he wants us to be made. You can say it. God made me. God loves me. Third thing. Now, here's the deal. If, you're, if you feel inferior, you might have trouble with the first two. If you feel superior, you're going to have trouble with this next one. The next one says, I have failed God. And some people feel like, hey, man, I don't, have anything, I don't have any problems in my life. I got it going on. No, you don't. I mean, the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You say, man, I'm a 10. I assure you you're not. I and your wife know that. Listen, you can, be a, you can be a really pretty good person, have it all together, but I assure you, you still come short, and so do I. God made me. God loves me. I failed God. Number four, God still loves me. Now, that's what's really exciting. Because you know what? There are a lot of people in this world, you fail them, they will cut you off. You make them unhappy, and they won't ever talk to you again. They will shut you out. They will disrespect you. Isn't it amazing that on either side of our failure is the love of God? Hey, listen, when you failed God, God said, still hadn't changed the way I feel about you. We're separated now, but I still love you. And God sent, because God still, see, here's the thing. We, we, we talk about God loving people. That's great. I think we need to talk more about God still loving us. Because that's why God gave his son Jesus to die on the cross. And number five, I need to look at God and say, it's my choice. Because I can either choose to have a relationship with God that will go into eternity, or I can choose to shut God out, and I can choose eternity on my own terms, which will take me to hell if I choose to do that. Listen to what the Bible says. You want to see an equality in a text? How about this? For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone... I don't read anything about race there, do you? I don't read anything about income. I don't read anything about what part of town you live in. I don't read anything about anything there. I don't read anything about whether you feel like... That in some way you're challenged in life. It says, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. Do you see why I put that number five in there? God made me. God loves me. I fail God. God still loves me, but it's my choice. I stand at the foot of a cross, and on that cross I see the son of God, and he's dying for me. And the blood that comes down his body is a payment for all the things that I've done wrong to show me that God still loves me. But I have a choice. 
I can look at Jesus and say, Jesus, from now on, you're everything to me. You're my hope. You're my future. You're my Savior. You're my God. You're my King. Or I can walk away and I can say, I think there's some good in all belief systems. I can say, I don't know why Jesus is any more important than anybody else. And you know what the Bible says? This is where the world goes wrong because the world says, well, that's just very autocratic and that's just very exclusionary. No, no. What the world doesn't understand is that we were judged already. From the moment we committed our first sin, we were all screwed up. We were on our way. And and God still loved us. And because he still loved us, he gave his son to die. And if you stand by faith and receive him, anyone can have eternity with God. If I reject him, anyone. You say, well, I grew up in a church. doesn't matter. You say, I'm a... I was baptized, still doesn't matter. You can say, well, I, I do a lot of good things, doesn't matter. Because anyone who rejects Jesus has eternity without him. Let's pray. I, I'm, while we're in this prayer, I know I'm talking to some today, and, and you just like, well, I just like came right to the end, and you're saying, wow, I, I really want to accept Christ, but how do I do it? I mean, do, do I join something? Do I do something? Do I light a candle? Do I, you know, what, what do, I, is it, do I get baptized? Hey, God loves you so much that he's made it so easy for you. It was tough for Jesus, but it's so easy for you. All God wants from you is a yes. Yes, I will have Jesus. Hey, a bride says, I do. A groom says, I do. And what God is wanting from you is he wants you to say yes to Christ. Now, if you've never invited Christ to come into your life and be your Savior, I'm going to pray a prayer. And you can repeat it after me. If you mean it from your heart, God will hear it. If you don't want to use my words, you just use the words that, you know, that, that, you hear what that guy said a few moments ago? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said he went home with the evidence torn up. <laughs> but if you want to, you can pray with me. Here we go. I'll pray it slowly so that you can have time to think about it. Jesus, I know I've done wrong. Forgive me. Save me. I trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer with me, no matter how you prayed it, you may have prayed it out loud, you may have whispered it, you may have prayed it in your heart. If you prayed that prayer with me, please do something. When you came in today, you got a worship folder. Part of it you can detach. I got something I want to give you. It won't cost you anything. I have some DVDs in here, and there's some material that will help you know what you just did and help, and help you know what, what God would love. To, and this, this, won't, this won't cost you a penny. If you'll just fill out the detachable part of your worship folder, you can... Put it in the boxes by the back doors, or you can put it in the offering plate, or you can put it in the bottom of the staircases. The box is there. I'll mail it to you this week. If you don't want to wait, you don't have to. Just take your card straight back to guest services. They'll give it to you today. I'm just glad you're here. 